Hello, I'm Byron Reese with Kickohm. From ultra-low power devices using microcontrollers to complex applications using dedicated machine learning processors, AI runs on ARM. The AI revolution will transform every aspect of our future driven by disruptors like ARM and the bright minds featured on this Voices in AI podcast. Enjoy! This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, I'm excited our guest is Rand Hindi. He's an entrepreneur and a data scientist. He is also the founder and the CEO of SNPs. They're building an AI assistant that protects your privacy. He started coding when he was 10 years old, founded a social network at 14, founded a web agency at 15, and he showed interest in machine learning at 18 and began work on a PhD in bioinformatics at age 21. He has been elected by MIT Technology Review as one of their 35 innovators under 35, and as a 30 under 30 by Forbes, as a rising star by the Founders Forum, and he is a member of the French Digital Council. Welcome to the show, Rand. Hi, Baron. Thanks for having me. That's a lot of stuff in your bio. Um, how, how did you get such an early start with all of this stuff? Well, to be honest, I think I don't have any credit, right? Uh, my parents pushed me very young into technology. I used to hack around the house, dismantling everything from televisions to radios, try to figure out how these things were working. And we had a computer at home when I was a kid. And so at some point, my mom came to me and gave me a coding book. And she's like, you should learn how to program the machine instead of just like figuring out how to break it pretty much. And from that day, just kept going. I mean, you know, it's as if, it's as if I was telling you when you were 10 that here's something that is amazing that you can use as a tool to do anything you ever have in mind. And so how long ago, how old are you now? I would love to work backwards just a little bit. All right. I'm 32 today. Okay. You mean you turned 32 today or you happen to be 32 today? <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I am 32. My birthday is in January. Okay. Um, and when did you first hear about artificial intelligence and get interested in that? So after I started coding, uh, you know, I guess like everybody who starts coding as a teenager, got interested in hacking security, these things. Uh, but when I went to university uh, to study computer science, I was actually so bored because obviously I already knew quite a lot about programming that I wanted to take them a challenge. And so I started taking master's classes uh, and one of them was in artificial intelligence and machine learning. And the day I discovered that it was like, it was mind blowing. It's as if for the first time, someone has shown me that I no longer had to program computers. I could just teach them what I want them to do. And this completely changed my perspective on computer science. And from that day, I knew that my thing wasn't going to be to code. It was to do AI. So let's start, uh, let's deconstruct artificial intelligence. What is intelligence? Well, intelligence is the ability for a human to perform some task in a very autonomous way, right? So uh, the way that well, I Wait like a second, talk, let's, uh, to it perform it in an autonomous way, that would be akin to winding up a car and letting it just cook, 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 cook across the floor, I and mean, that's autonomous. Is that intelligent? Well, I mean, of course, you know, uh, we're not talking about things which are automated, but rather about the ability to make decisions by yourself, right? So the ability to essentially adapt to the context you're in, the ability to, you know, uh, abstract what you've been learning and reuse it somewhere else. All of those different things are part of what makes us intelligence. intelligence. And so the way that I like to define artificial intelligence is really just as the ability to reproduce a human intelligent behavior in a machine. So my cat food dish that when it runs out of cat food and it can sense that there's no food in it, it opens a little door and releases more food. That's artificial intelligence? Yeah. I mean, you could consider one form of AI. And I think you know, it's important to really distinguish what we currently have with narrow AI and strong AI. Sure, sure. We're, we'll get to that in, in due time. So where do you say we are when people say, I hear a lot about artificial intelligence. What is the state of the art? Are we kind of at the very beginning, just doing the most rudimentary things? Or are we kind of like halfway along 
and we're, 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 we're you know, making stuff happen? Or how do you describe today's state of the art? What we're really good at today is building and teaching machines to do one thing and to do it better than humans. But those machines are incapable of second degree thinking like we do as humans, for example. So I think we really have to think about it this way. You've got a specific task for which you would traditionally have programmed the machine, right? And now you can essentially have a machine look at examples of that behavior and reproduce it and ex execute it better than a human would. And this is really the state of the art. It's, it's not yet about intelligence in the human sense. It's about a task-specific ability to execute something. So I posted an article recently on, uh, on GigaOM where I have an Amazon Echo and a Google Assistant on my desk. And almost immediately, I noticed they started, they would answer the same factual question differently. So if I said, how many minutes are in a year? They gave me a different answer. If I said, who designed the American flag? Give me a different answer. And they did so because how many minutes in a year, one of them interpreted that as a solar year and one of them interpreted that as a calendar year. And with regard to the flag, one of them gave the, the school answer of Betsy Ross and one of them uh, gave the answer to who designed the 50 state configuration of the stars. So in both of those cases, would you say I asked a bad question that was inherently ambiguous? Or would you say the AI should have tried to disintermediate and figure it out and that that is an illustration of the limit you were just talking about? Well, I mean, the question you're really asking here is what would be the ground truth that the AI should both have? And I don't think there is because as you correctly said, you know, the computer interpreted an ambiguous question in a different way, which is correct because there are two different answers depending on context. And I think this is also a key limitation of what we currently have with AI is that you and I, we disambiguate what we're saying because we have cultural references. We have contextual references to things that we share. And so when I tell you something, you know, I live in New York half the time. So if you ask me who created the flag, we both have the same answer because we live in the same country. But someone on a different side of the world might have a different answer. And it's exactly the same thing with AI. Until we're able to bake in contextual awareness, cultural awareness, uh, or even things like very simply knowing what is the uh, most common answer that people would give, we're going to have those kind of weird side effects that you would just observe here. So isn't it though the case that all language is inherently ambiguous? I mean, once you get out of the realm of what is two plus two, everything like, are you happy? Um, uh, what's the weather like? Uh, uh, is that pretty? All, like anything you construct with language has in inherent ambiguity just by the nature of words. Correct. This is and so correct. How, this do you get, how do you get around that? Well, so as humans, the way that we get around that is that we actually have a sort of uh, prob probabilistic model in our heads of how we should interpret something. And sometimes it's actually funny because, you know, you, I might say something, you're going to take it wrong, not because I meant it wrong, but because you understood it with a different context and reference frame. But fortunately, what happens is that people who usually interact together usually share some sort of similar contextual uh, reference points. And based on this, it means that we're able to share uh, in a very natural way without having to explain the logic behind everything we say. So language in itself is very ambiguous. If I tell you something such as uh, the football match yesterday was amazing, this sentence grammatically and syntactically is very simple, but the meaning only makes sense if you and I were watching the same thing yesterday, right? And so this is exactly why computers are very, very, uh, still unable to understand human language the same way we do is because it's unable to understand this kind of notion of context unless you give it to it. And I think this is going to be one of the most active field of research in natural language processing is going to be, you know, basically baking in contextual awareness into natural language understanding. So you just said um, a minute ago at the beginning of that, that humans have a probabilistic model that they're running in their head. Is that really true though? Because if I ask somebody, I just come up to a stranger, how many minutes are in a year? They're not going to say, well, there was an 82.7% chance he's referring to a calendar year, but a 17.4% chance he's referring to a solar year. I mean, they instantly only have one association with that question. 
uh, yeah, most people, right? And so Not they don't actually have a probabilistic, or are you saying it's a de facto one? Exactly. By, so uh, talk to that for just a second. So, I mean, how it's actually encoded in the brain, I don't know, right? But the fact is that depending on the way I ask the question, depending on the information I'm giving you about how you should think about the question, you're going to think about a different answer. So if I tell you, you know, how many stars are, well, let's see, how many minutes are in the year? If I ask you the question like this, this is the most common way of asking the question, which means that, you know, I'm expecting you to give me the most common answer to that question. But if I give you more information, if I told you how many minutes are in a solar year, so now I've specified an extra information, then that will change the answer you're gonna give me because now the probability is no longer that I'm asking for the general question, but rather than I'm asking you for a very specific one. And so you have this sort of like, all those connections built into your brain and depending on which of those elements are activated, you're gonna be uh, giving me a different response. So think about it like, you have this kind of graph of knowledge in your head and whenever I'm asking something, you've got to give me a response by picking the most likely answer. So this, this is building up to, uh, well, let me ask you more question about language and, and we'll, we'll, we'll start to move past this a little bit, but I think this is fascinating. So the questions often raised, are there other intelligent creatures on earth? You know, the other sorts of, um, you know, animals and whatnot. And one school of thought says that language is a natural requirement for intelligence, that without a language, you can't actually conceive of abstract ideas in your head. You can't, you can't um, do any of that. And therefore, if you, anything that doesn't have language doesn't have intelligence. Do you agree with that? I guess if you're talking about general intelligence, yes. Because language is really just a universal interface for you know, representing things. This is the beauty of language. You and I speak English, and we don't have to learn a specific language for every topic we want to talk about. What we can do instead is we can use the same fundamental interface, the language, to express all kinds of different ideas. And so the flexibility of natural language means that you're able to think about a lot more different things. And so this, you know, inherently, I believe, means that it opens up the amount of things you can figure out enhance you know, intelligence. I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense. I, to be honest, I had never thought about it exactly like this, but when you think about it, if you have a very limited interface to express things, you're never gonna be able to think about that many things. So Alan Turing famously made the Turing test, which he said that if you can't, if you're on a terminal, you're having a conversation with something in another room and you can't tell if it's a person or machine. Interestingly, he said 30% of the time, if the machine can fool you, then we have to say the machine is thinking. Do you interpret that as language indicates that it is thinking or language is it actually thinking? Hmm. Well, I was, I was talking about this recently, actually. Uh, just because a machine can generate an answer that looks human, doesn't mean that the machine actually understands the answer it gave you, right? I think, you know, the, the, the depth of understanding of the semantics and the context goes beyond the ability to generate something that makes sense to a human. So it really depends what, what you're asking the machine, right? If you're asking something trivial, such as, you know, uh, uh, how many days are in a year, whatever, then of course I'm sure the machine can generate a very simple, well-structured answer that would be exactly like a human would. But if you start digging in further, if you start having a conversation, if you start essentially, you know, brainstorming with the machine, if you start asking for analysis of something, then this is where it's going to start failing because the answer is going to give you won't have context, it won't have abstraction, it won't have all these other things which makes us really human. And so I think, you know, it's very, very hard to determine where you should draw the line. Is it about the ability to write letters in a way that is synthetically grammatically correct? or is it the ability to actually have an intelligent conversation like a human would? I think the former we can definitely do in the soon future, the near future. The latter would require AGI, and I don't think we're there yet. So you, you use the word understanding, and that of course uh, immediately calls up um, the Chinese room problem put forth by John Searle. For the benefit of the listener, it goes like this. There's a, there's a man who's in a room, and uh, it's full of these 
many thousands of these very special books. The man doesn't speak any Chinese. That's the important thing to know. People slide questions in Chinese underneath the door. He picks them up and he has this kind of algorithm. He looks at the first symbol. He finds a matching symbol on the spine of one of the books. He looks up the second book. That takes him to a third book, a fourth book, a fifth book, all the way until he gets to a book that he knows to copy some certain symbols from. And he doesn't know what they mean. Slides it back under the door. And the, the punchline is, it's a perfect answer in Chinese. It, you know, it's profound and witty and well-written and all of that. So the question that Searle posed and answered in the negative is, does the man understand Chinese? And of course, the analogy is that that's all a computer can do. And therefore, a computer, it just runs this probable, I mean, this uh, deterministic program, and it can never, therefore, understand whether anything. It doesn't understand anything. Do you think computers can understand things? Oh, well, let, let's just take the Chinese room. Does the man understand Chinese? No, he doesn't. And I think this is actually a very, very good example. Uh, it's a very good way to put it, essentially. Because what the, what the person has done in that case to give a response in Chinese, he literally learned an algorithm on the fly to give an answer. This is exactly how machine learning currently works. Machine learning isn't about understanding what's going on. It's about replicating what other people would have done, which is a fundamental difference. It's subtle, but it's fundamental because to be able to understand, you need to be able to also replicate de facto, right? Because if you can understand, you can replicate. But being able to replicate doesn't mean that you're able to understand. Uh, and the way that we build those machine learning models today are not meant to have a deep understanding of what's going on. It's meant to have a very appropriate human understandable response. So exactly, I mean, I think this is exactly what happens in, in this thought experiment. It's exactly the same thing, pretty much. It, you know, it, it's, it's without going into general intelligence, I think what we really have to think about today, the way I like to see this is machine learning is not about building human-like intelligence yet. It's about replacing the need to program a computer to perform a task. Up until now, when you wanted to make a computer do something, what you had to do first is understand what, you want what the phenomenon is yourself. So you had to become an expert into whatever you're trying to automate. And then you would write a computer code with those rules, right? And so the problem is that doing this would take a while because a human would have to understand what's going on, which can take a while. And also the other problem, of course, is that not everything, not everything is understandable by humans at least not you know, easily. Machine learning completely replaces the need to become an expert, right? So instead of understanding what's going on and then programming the machine, you're just collecting examples of what's going on and feeding it to the machine who will then figure out a way to reproduce that. So you know, the simple example is, show me a pattern of numbers with written you know, five times five and ask me you know, what is a pattern, I'll learn that is five, if that makes sense. So this is really about this, right? This is really about getting rid of the need to understand what you're trying to make the machine do and just give it examples that it can figure out by itself. So we, we began with the, you know, my wind up car and then the cat food dish and we're working up to understanding. Eventually we have to get to consciousness because consciousness is this thing. People say we don't know what it is, but we know exactly what it is. We just don't know how it comes about. And so what it is is that we experience the world. We, you know, have, can taste the pineapple or see the redness of the sunset in a way that's different than just sensing the world we experience. Uh, two questions. Do you have any personal theory on where consciousness comes from? And, is consci and second, is consciousness key to understanding and therefore key to an AGI? I think so. Um, you know, I, I think there is no question that consciousness is linked to uh, intelligence and to general intelligence, because general intelligence means that you need to be able to create abstraction of the world, which means that you need to be able to go beyond just observing it, but also be able to understand it and to experience it. So I think that is a very simple way to put it. Um, what I'm actually wondering is whether consciousness became like was a consequence of biology and whether we need to replicate that in a machine 
to make it you know intelligent like a human would be intelligent so essentially the way i'm thinking about this is is there a way to build a human intelligence that would seem human and do we want that to seem human because if it's just about reproducing the way intelligence works in a machine then we shouldn't care that it feels human or not we should just care about the ability for the machine to do something smart uh, so I think the question of consciousness in the machine is really down to the question of whether or not we want to make it human. Um, you know, uh, uh, there are many technologies that we built, which for which we have examples in nature which perform the same task but don't work the same. You know, birds and planes, for example. Right? I'm pretty sure a bird needs to have some sort of like consciousness of itself not getting into the wall. Uh, Whereas, you know, we didn't need to replicate all those tiny bits for the, for the actual uh, plane to, to, to fly. It's just a very different way of, of doing things. So do you have a theory as to how it is that we are conscious? I think it probably comes from the fact that we had to evolve as a species with other individuals, right? And how would you actually understand where to position yourself in society and therefore how to best build a very coherent, stable, strong community if you don't have consciousness of other people, of nature, of yourself. So I think there's like inherently the fact that having a kind of ecosystem of human beings and humans in nature and human and animals meant that you had to build and develop consciousness. I think it was probably part of a very positive evolutionary strategy. Um, whether or not that comes from your neurons or whether that comes more from like, you know, a combination of different things, including your senses, I'm not sure. But I feel that like the need for consciousness definitely came from the need for integrating yourself into a broader structure. And so not to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you think that it is a you said we're not close to it, but it is possible to build an AGI, and it sounds like you think it's possible to build, hypothetically, a conscious computer, and you're asking the question, would we want to? Yes. Uh, the question is whether or not it would make sense for whatever we have in mind for it. I think probably we should do it. We should try to do it just for the science. Uh, I just not, I'm just not sure if this is going to be the most useful thing to do uh, or whether we're going we're gonna to figure out an even more general, general intelligence, which doesn't have only human trace, but has something even more than this that would be a lot more powerful. Hmm, uh, what would that look like? Well, that is a good question. I have clearly no idea because otherwise, yeah, I mean, it's very hard to think about a bigger intelligence and the intelligence that we're limited to, in a sense. Uh, but it's very possible that we might end up concluding that, well, you know, human intelligence is great for being a human, but maybe a machine doesn't have to have the same constraints. Maybe a machine can like have a different type of intelligence, which would make it a lot better suited for the type of things we're expecting the machine to do. And I don't think we're expecting the machines to be human. I think we're expecting the machines to augment us, to help us, to solve problems humans cannot solve. So why limit it to a human intelligence? So, do you, the people I talk to and you know, I say, when will we get an AGI? Uh, the, the, uh, the predictions vary by two orders of magnitude. You, you, you can read everything from five to 500 years. Where do you come down on that? When do you, you've made several comments that you don't think we're close to it. When do you think right. we'll see an AGI? Will you live to see an AGI, for instance? This is very, very hard to tell. You know, I mean, there is this funny artifact that everybody makes a prediction 20 years in the future. And it's actually because most people, when they make those predictions, have about 20 years left in their careers. So, so you know, nobody's able to think beyond their own lifetime, in a sense. Um, I don't think it's 20 years away, at least not in the sense of real human intelligence. Uh, are we going to be able to replicate parts of uh, AGI, such as, you know, the ability to uh, transfer a learning from one task to another? Yes. And I think this is short term. Are we going to be able to build machines that can go one level of abstraction higher uh, to do something? Yes, probably. But it doesn't mean they're going to be as versatile, as generalist, as horizontal, horizontally thinking as we are as humans. Uh, I think for that, we really, really have to figure out once and for all whether a human intelligence requires a human 
experience of the world, which means the same senses, the same rules, the same constraints, the same energy, the same speed of thinking uh, or not. Uh, so we might just bypass, you know, as I said, human intelligence we might go from like narrow AI to a different type of intelligence that is neither human or narrow, that's just different. So you mentioned transfer learning. So um, uh, humans are good at, like I could show you, um, you know, a small statue of a falcon. And then uh, I could show you 100 photographs and some of them have the falcon underwater on its side in different light, it, um, you know, uh, upside down and all these other things. And humans have no problem saying, there it is, there it is, there it is, you know, it's kind of find Waldo with the falcon. Um, so in other words, humans can train with a sample size of one, primarily because we have a lot of experience seeing other things in low light and all of that. So if that's transfer learning, it sounds like you think that's, we're gonna be able to do that pretty quickly. And that's kind of a big deal if we can really teach machines to generalize the way we do, or is that kind of generalization that I just went through, that actually is part of our general intelligence at work? So I don't, I don't think transfer, I think transfer learning is necessary to build AGI, but it's not enough. Because at the end of the day, just because a machine can learn to play a game and then you know, have a starting point to play another game, doesn't mean that it'll make the choice to learn this other game. It'll still be you telling it, okay, here's a task I need you to do, use your existing learning to perform it. It's still pretty much task driven, right? And this is a fundamental difference. It is extremely impressive. And to be honest, I think it's absolutely necessary because right now, when you look at uh, what you do with machine learning, you need to collect a bunch of different examples and you're feeding that to the machine and the machine is learning from those examples to reproduce that behavior, right? Uh, when you're doing transfer learning, you're still teaching a lot of things to the machine, but you're teaching it to reuse other things so that it doesn't need as much data. So I think inherently the biggest benefit of transfer learning will be that we won't need to collect as much data to make the computers do something new. Right? It just opens up, it solves essentially the biggest friction point we have today, which is how do you access enough data to make the machine learn the behavior? In some cases, the data does not exist. And so I think transfer learning is a very elegant, very you know, uh, uh, good solution to that problem. So the last question I wanna ask you about AGI and then, um we can turn the clock back and talk to, to issues closer at hand is as follows. So it sounds like you're saying an AGI is more than 20 years off. If, if I just inferred that from what you just said, and I'm, I'm curious because the human genome is whatever, 2 billion base pairs. It's something like 700 and ish mag of information. Most of which we share with plants, you know, bananas and whatnot. And then if you look at, our intelligence versus a chimp or something. You know, we, we only have, you know, a fraction of 1% of DNA that's different. And what that seems to suggest to me, at least, is that with the genome 700 meg and the 1% difference makes, gives us an AGI, then mm -hmm. the code to create an AGI could be as small as seven meg. Yep. And, and I'm curious if you think that, if you think, oh no, and, like Pedro Domingo wrote a book called The Master Algorithm where he says that there, there, there probably is an algorithm that can solve a whole world of problems and get us really close to AGI. And then other people on another end of the spectrum, like Marvin Minsky or somebody, don't, don't even know that we have an AGI, that we're like just 200 different hacks. We can kind of 200 narrow intelligences that just kind of pull off this, this trick of seeming like a general intelligence. I'm wondering if you think that an AGI could be relatively simple, that it's not a matter of more data or more processing, but just a better algorithm. So just to be clear, you know, I mean, I don't consider a machine who can perform 200 different tasks to be an AGI. This just like an ensemble of, you know, narrow AIs. So right, and, and, that, and, and that school of thought says that therefore we are not an AGI. We, we only have this really limited set of things we can do 
that we like to pass off as, ah, we can do anything, but we really can't. We're, we're 200 narrow AIs, and the minute you ask us to do things outside of that, we, we, they're, they're off our radar entirely. For me, the simplest definition of how to differentiate between a narrow AI and an AGI is an AGI is capable of kind of zooming out of what it knows, right? So to basically have like a second degree view of the facts that it learned and then reuse that to do something completely different. And I think this capacity we have as humans, right? We did not have to learn every possible permutation. We did not have to learn every single zooming out of every fact in the world to be able to do new things. So I think I definitely agree that as a human, we are AGI, right? I just don't think that having a computer who can learn to do 200 different things would do that. You would still need to figure out this, this ability to zoom out and this ability to create abstraction of what you've been learning and to reapply somewhere else. I think this is really like the definition of horizontal thinking, right? You can only think horizontally if you're like taking a, if you're looking up uh, rather than staying in a silo. Um, so to your question, yeah, I mean, why not? Maybe, maybe the algorithm for AGI is simple. When you think about it, like deep learning, machine learning in general, these are deceptively easy in terms of mathematics. You know, we don't really understand how it works yet, but the mathematics behind it is very, very easy. So we did not have to come up with this like crazy solution. We just came up with an algorithm that turned out to be simple and that worked really well when given a ton of information. So I'm pretty sure that, you know, AGI doesn't have to be that much more complicated, right? I mean, you know, it might be one of those you know, E equal MC2 sort of elegance uh, thing that we were going to figure out. Um, that was certainly the hope way back that because physics itself obeys such simple laws that were hidden from us and then once elucidated seem, you know, any, any, any uh, 11th grade high school student can learn. Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe so. So, pulling back more toward the here and now, in 97, you know, Deep Blue beat Kasparov, and then after that, we had uh, Ken Jennings lose in Jeopardy, then you had AlphaGo beat Lisa Dole, then you had um, some top-ranked poker players beaten, and then you just had another AlphaGo victory. So, AI does really well at games, presumably because they have a very defined narrow rule set in a, in a constrained environment. What do you think is going to be kind of the next thing like that, that it hits the papers, everybody's like, wow, that's a big milestone. That's really cool. Didn't see that coming so soon. What, will you, what do you think will be the next sort of things we'll see? Mm. Um, so games are always a good example right? Because everybody knows the game. So everybody's like, oh, wow, this is crazy. Uh, so you're putting aside, I guess, the, uh, the sort of PR uh, and bus factor. Um, I think that we're going to get, we're going to solve, uh, we're going to solve things like medical diagnosis. We're going to solve things like uh, 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 understanding voice, uh, very, very soon. Like, I think we're going to get to a point very soon, for example, where someone's going to be calling you on the phone. It's going to be very hard for you to distinguish whether it's a human or a computer talking. Like, I think like this is definitely short term as in less than 10 years in the future, which poses a lot of very interesting questions, you know, around authentication, privacy, and so on and so forth. But I think the whole realm of natural language is something that people always look at as a failure of AI. Oh, it's a cute robot. It barely actually knows how to speak. It has a really funny sounding voice. Uh, so this is typically the kind of thing that nobody thinks right now a computer can really do eloquently, but I'm pretty sure that we're going to get there fairly soon. One of the, um, well, I mean, but to our point earlier, the computer understanding the words, how, who designed the American flag, is different than the computer understanding the nuance of the question. It sounds like correct. you say we're going to do the first and not the second very quickly. Yeah, yeah. Correct. I think, I think like somewhere the computer will need to have a knowledge base of how to answer. And I'm sure, you know, that we're going to figure out which answer is the most common. So you're going to have this sort of like graph of knowledge that is going to be baked into those assistants that people are going to be interacting with. 
I think from a human perspective, uh, what is going to be very different is that your experience of interacting with a machine will become a lot more seamless, just like a human. And I think most people today don't believe that, like nobody today believes that when someone calls them on the phone, it's a computer, right? And I think this is like a fundamental thing that nobody is seeing coming really, but is going to shift very soon. Like I can feel that there is something happening around voice, which is making it very, 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 uh, like which is going to make it very ubiquitous in the near future and therefore indistinguishable from a human perspective. I'm already getting those calls, frankly. I get this, these calls and I go, hello. And it's like, hey, this is Susan. Um, can you hear me okay? And, and I, I'm supposed to say, yes, Susan. And then uh, Susan says, oh, good. By the way, I was seeing, just wanting to follow up on that letter I sent you. And, and we have those now. Um, yep. But that's not really a watershed event. That's not you wake up one day and the world's changed the way it has when they say, you know, there was this game that we thought computers wouldn't be able to do for so long, and they just did it, and it definitively happened. It sounds like the way you're phrasing it, uh, that we're, that we're going to master voice in that way, it sounds like you say, we're going to have a machine that passes the Turing test. I think we're going to have a machine that will pass the Turing test for simple tasks, not for, you know, uh, having a conversation like we're having right now, right? But a, Turing, uh, a machine that passes a Turing test in, let's say, a limited domain, I'm pretty sure we're going to get there fairly soon. Well, um, anybody who's listened to other episodes of this knows my favorite question for, for those systems that so far I've never found one that could answer. And so my first question is always, what's bigger, a nickel or the sun? And uh, they can't even right now do that. I mean, sun could be S-U-N or S-O-N. A nickel is a metal as well as a unit of currency and, and so forth. So yeah. it sounds... It, feels like we're a long way away to me. This is exactly what we've been talking earlier. This is because currently those assistants are lacking context. There are two parts of it, right? There's the part which is about understanding and speaking. So understanding a human talking and speaking in a way that a human wouldn't realize it's a computer speaking. This is more like the voice side. And then there is the understanding side. There is a viewer. Now you have some words and you want to be able to give a response which is appropriate. And right now, right, that response is based on a syntactic and grammatical analysis of the sentence and it's lacking context. But if you plug it into a database of knowledge, right, that it can tap into, just like a human does, by the way, then the answers it can provide you will be more and more intelligent. It will still not be able to think, right, but it will be able to give you the correct answers because it will have the same contextual reference as you do. It's interesting because at the beginning of the call, I noted about the Turing test that Turing only put a 30% benchmark. He said, if, if the machine gets picked 30% of the time, we have to say it's thinking. And I think he said 30% because the question is, can it think as well as a human, but can it think? The, the really interesting milestone in my mind is when it hits 51%, 52% of the time. And that would imply that it's better at being human than we are, or at least it's better at seeming human than we are. Yeah. So again, so, it really depends how you're designing the test. I think a computer would fail 100% of the time if you're trying to brainstorm with it, but it might win 100% of the time if you're asking it to give you an answer to a question. So there's a lot of fear wrapped up in artificial intelligence, and it's in two buckets. One is the Hollywood fear of, you know, killer robots and all of that. And But the much more here and now, the one that dominates the debate and the discussion is the effect that artificial intelligence and therefore automation will have on jobs. And as you know, there's, there's three broad schools of thought. One is that, that there's a certain group of people that are un, going to be unable to compete with these machines and will be permanently kind of unemployed, lacking skills to add economic value. Uh, second theory says that actually that's what's going to happen to all of us, that there's nothing in theory a machine can't do that um, a human can do. And then a final school of thought that says uh, we have 250 years of empirical data of people using transformative technologies like electricity just to augment their own productivity and increase 
the productivity in there for the standard of living. You've said a couple of times, you've alluded to machines working with humans, AIs working with humans. But I, I want to give you kind of a blank slate to answer that question. Which of those three schools of thought are you most closely aligned to and why? I'm 100% convinced that we have to be thinking human plus machines. And so there are many reasons for this. So you know, just for the record, it turns out I actually know quite a bit about that topic because I was asked by the French government a few months ago to work under AI strategy for employment. Right? So the country, the government wanted to know what should we do, right? Like how big is it going to be disruptive? So the answer, the short answer is every country will be impacted in a different way, right? Because countries don't have the same relationship to automation based on, you know, what is it, how, how people work and what they're doing essentially. So for France in particular, which is what I can talk about here, what we ended up realizing is that machines... So first, the first thing which is important to keep in mind is we're talking the next 10 years, right? So the government does not care about AGI because AGI, like we'll never get to AGI if we can't fix the short-term issues that, you know, narrow intelligence is already bringing on the table. So the point is, if you destroy society because of narrow AI, you're never going to get to AGI anyway. So why think about it? So we've really focused the thinking on the next 10 years and what we should do with narrow AI. The first thing we realize is that a narrow intelligence, narrow AI is much better than humans at performing whatever is learning, whatever has learned to do, but humans are much more resilient to edge cases and to things which are not, which are not very obvious because of their ability to have horizontal thinking. So the best combination you could have in any system will always be human plus machine. Human plus machine is strictly better in every single scenario to human alone or machine alone. So if you wanted to really pick an order, I would say, you know, human plus machine is the best solution that you can get. Then human and machine are just not going to be good at the same things. They're going to be different things. It's not one better than the other. It's just different. And so we define, we designed a framework to figure out which jobs are gonna be completely replaced by machines, which ones are gonna be you know, complementary between human and AI, and which ones will be pure machines, sorry, pure human. And so those five criteria that we have in the framework are very simple. The first one is, do we actually have the technology or the data to build such an AI? You know, sometimes you might want to automate something, the data does not exist, the sensors to collect data does not exist, there are many examples of that. The second thing is, does that task that you want to automate require a very complicated manual intervention? It turns out that robotics is not following the same experiential trend as AI. And so if your job is mostly consisting of, you know, using your hands to do very complicated things, then it's very hard to build an intelligence that can replicate that. The third thing is very simply, whether or not we require general intelligence to solve a specific task. You know, are you more of a systems designer thinking about the global picture of something or are you a very, very focused, narrow task uh, uh, worker? So you know, the more horizontal your job is, obviously the safer it is because until we get AGI, computers will never be able to have this horizontal thinking. The last two uh, are quite interesting too. The first one is, are we actually, do we actually want, is it socially acceptable to automate a task? Just because you can automate something doesn't mean that this is what we will want to do. You know, for instance, you could get a computer to diagnose that you have cancer and just email you the news. But do we want that, right? Or don't we prefer that at least a human gives us the news? Uh, the second good example about it, which is quite funny is, uh, the soccer referee, you know, so soccer in Europe is very big, not as much in the US, but in Europe is very big. Uh, and we already have technology today that could just look at the video stream and do real time refereeing, refereeing, right? And it could, it would apply the rules of the game. It would say, here's a foul, like here's whatever. But the problem is people don't want that because it turns out that a human referee 
makes a judgment on the fly based on other factors that he understands because he's human, such as, is it a good time to let people play? Because if I stop it here, it would, it would like just make the game boring. So it turns out that if we automated the referee of a soccer match, the game would be extremely boring and nobody would watch it. So nobody wants that to be automated. And then finally, the final criteria is the, the importance of emotional intelligence in your job. If you're a manager, your job is to connect emotionally with your team and make sure you know, everything is going well. And so I think you know, a very simple way to think about this is if your job is mostly soft skills, a, machine's, a machine will not be able to do it in your place. If your job is mostly hard skill, there is a chance we can automate that. And so when you take those five criteria, right, and you look at the distribution of jobs in France, what you realize is that only about 10% of those jobs will be completely automated. Another 30%, 40% won't change because they'll still be mostly done by human. And about 50% of those jobs will be transformed. So you've got 10% of jobs that machines will take. You've got 40% uh, of jobs that humans will take. And you've got 50% of jobs which will change because it will become a combination of human and machines doing the job. And so the conclusion is that if you're trying to anticipate the impact of AI on the French job market and economy, we shouldn't be thinking about how to solve mass unemployment with half the population are working. Rather, we should figure out how to help those 50% of people transition to this AI plus human way of working. And so it's all about, you know, continuous education. It's all about breaking this idea that like you learn one thing good for the rest of your life. And it's about getting into a much more fluid, flexible sort of like work life where humans focus on what they're good at and working alongside machines who are doing things the machines are good at. So the recommendation we give to the government is figure out the best way to make humans and machine collaborate and teach, educate people to work with machines. There's a couple of pieces of legislation um, that we've read about in Europe that I would love to get your thoughts on, or proposed legislation to be clear. One of them is treating robots or, or certain agents of automation as legal persons so that they can be taxed at a similar rate as you would tax a, a, a worker. Um, I guess the idea being that why should humans be the only ones paying taxes? Why shouldn't, why shouldn't the automation, the robots or the artificial intelligences pay taxes as well? Do you think that that, uh, practically, what do you think? And then two, what do you think should be the case? Like what will happen and what should happen? So for taxing robots, uh, I think it's a stupid idea for a very simple reason is that how do you define what a machine is, right? It's easy when you're talking about an assembly line with a physical machine because you can touch it, but how many machines are in an image recognition app? How do you define that? And so what, what the conclusion is, is that if you're trying to tax machines like you would tax humans for labor, then you're gonna end up not being able to actually define what is a machine Therefore, you're not going to actually tax the machine, but you're going to have to figure out a more of a meta way of taxing the impact of machines, which basically means that you're going to increase the corporate taxes, like the, uh, the, uh, the profit tax that companies are making as a kind of catch-all what you're doing. And so if you're doing this, you're impeding reinvestment and innovation, and you're actually removing the incentive to do that. So I think that it makes no sense whatsoever to try to tax robots because the net consequence is that you're just going to increase the taxes companies have to pay overall. And then the second one is the idea that more and more algorithms, more and more AIs make, um, help us make choices. Sometimes they make choices for us. What will I see? What will I read? What will I do? And there seems to be a, a movement to legislatively require um, total transparency so that you can say, why did it recommend this? Yeah. And a person would need to explain why the AI made this recommendation. One, is that a good idea? And two, is it even possible at some level? Well, so this actually has been voted last year and it comes into effect next year 
as part of a bigger privacy regulation called the GDPR that applies to any company who wants to do business with a European citizen. So whether you're American, Chinese, French, it doesn't matter, you're gonna to have to do that. And in effect, you know, one of the things that this regulation imposes is that any automated treatments uh, that results in a significant impact on your life, a medical diagnosis, an insurance pricing, whatever, like an employment or like a promotion you would get, uh, you have to be able to explain how the algorithm made that choice. And the reason why they've put that in there, uh, by the way, this, this law exists in France already since 1978. Huh? So it's just new in Europe, but it has been existing in France for 40 years already. The reason why they put this is very simple. is because they want to avoid uh, people being excluded because a machine learned a bias in the population, right? And that person essentially not being able to go to court and say, there is a bias, I was unfairly treated. So essentially the reason why they want transparency is because they want to have accountability against potential biases that might be introduced, which I think makes a lot of sense, to be honest. Uh, and that poses a lot of questions, of course, of what do you consider an algorithm that has an impact on your life? Is your Facebook news feeds impacting your life? You could argue it does because the choice of news that you see will change your influence and Facebook knows that. They've experimented with that. Does a search result in Google have an impact on your life? Yes, it does because it limits the scope of what you're seeing. So my, my feeling is that when you keep pushing this, what you're going to end up realizing is that a lot of the systems that exist today will not be able to rely on this black box machine learning model, but rather will have to use other types of methods. And so one field of study, which is very exciting, is actually making, making deep learning understandable for precisely that reason. Which it sounds like you're in favor of, but you also think that that will be an increasing trend over time. Yeah, I mean, I believe that actually what's happening in Europe is going to permeate to a lot of the other places in the world. The right to privacy, the right to be forgotten, you know, the right to have transparent uh, algorithms when they're important, the right to transferability of your personal data. This is another very important one. This same regulation means that all of my data I have with a provider, I can tell that provider to send it to another provider in a way that the other provider can use it. You know, just like when you change carrier, you can switch phone number without having to worry about how this works. This will now apply to every single piece of personal data companies have around you when you're a European citizen. So this is huge, right? Because think about it. What this means is if you have a very key algorithm for making a decision, you now have to publish and make that algorithm transparent, right? What that means is that someone else could replicate this algorithm in exactly the same way you're doing it. This plus the transferability of personal data means that you could have two exactly equivalent services which have the same data about you that you could use. So that completely breaks any technological monopoly that are important things for your life. And so I think this is very, very interesting because the impact that this will have on AI is huge. People are racing to get the best AI algorithm and the best data, but at the end of the day, if I can copy your algorithm because it's an important thing for my life and it has to be transparent, and if I can transfer my data from you to another provider, then you don't have as much of a competitive advantage anymore. But doesn't that mean, therefore, you don't have any incentive to invest in it? If you're basically legislating all sources, all code is open source, then why would anybody spend any money investing in something that they get no benefit whatsoever from. Innovation, user experience. This mm -hmm. actually puts, like, monopoly is the worst thing that could happen for innovation and for uh, people, right? But, but is, that, is that true necessarily? I mean, patents are a form of monopoly, right? We let drug companies have a monopoly on some drug for some period of time because they need some economic incentive to invest in it. So all of, all of law is built around monopoly in one form or the other based on, on the idea of patents. And if you're saying, well, there's an entire area that's worth trillions of dollars, 
but we're not going to let anybody profit off of it because anything you do, you have to share with everybody else. Aren't you just destroying innovation? Because that transparency doesn't prevent you from protecting your IP, right? So you could What's the difference still, between the IP and the algorithm? You could still, so you could still, sorry, uh, your algorithm, you could still patent the system you created, right? And by the way, when you patent a system, you're making it transparent as well, huh? because anybody can read that patent. So if anything, I don't think that changes the protection over time. I think what that fundamentally changes is that you're no longer going to be confronted to a black box approach uh, that you're not going to be able to have a visibility on. I think the Europeans want the market to become a lot more open. They want people to have choices and they want people to be able to say no to a company if they don't share the values of the company, if they don't like the way they're being treated. So obviously privacy is something near and dear to your heart. SNPs is an AI assistant designed to protect privacy. Can you tell us what you're trying to do there and how far along you are? Um, so when we started a company in 2013, we did it as a research lab in AI. And one of the first thing that we focused on was this intersection between AI and privacy. How do you guarantee privacy in the way that you're building those AIs? And so that eventually led us to what we're currently doing now, which is we're selling a voice platform for connected devices. So if you're building a car, a TV, and you want people to talk to it, you can use our technology to do that. But we're doing it in a way that all the data of the user, his voice, his personal data, never leaves the device that the user is interacting with. So you know, whereas Alexa and Siri and Google Assistant are running in the cloud, we're actually running completely on the device itself. There is not a single piece of your personal data that goes to a server. And this is important because voice is biometric, right? Voice is something that identifies you uniquely that you cannot change. It's not like a cookie in a browser. It's like, more like a fingerprint. And so when you send biometric data <clears throat> to the cloud, you're exposing yourself to having your voice copied potentially down the line. And you're increasing the risk that someone might break into one of those server and essentially pretend to be a million people on the phone with their banks and their kids and whatever. So I think for us, like privacy is extremely important as part of the game. And by the way, doing things on device means that we can guarantee privacy by design, which also means that we're currently the only technology on the planet that is 100% compliant with those new European regulations. Everybody else is in a gray area right now. And so where, where, are, where are you in your life cycle of your product? Uh, so we've been actually uh, building this for quite some time. We've had quite a bunch of clients use it. We officially launched it uh, a few weeks ago uh, and the launch was really amazing. We even had like a web version that people could use to build prototypes for Raspberry Pi. So, you know, our technology, by the way, can run completely in a Raspberry Pi. So we do everything from speech recognition to natural language understanding on an actual Raspberry Pi. And we've had over a thousand people start building assistance on it. I mean, it was really, really crazy. Um, so it's a very, very mature technology. We benchmarked it against Alexa, against Google Assistant, against every other technology provider out there for voice. And we've actually gotten better performances than they do. So we have a technology that can run on a Raspberry Pi or any other small device that guarantees privacy by design, that is compliant with a new you know, European regulation, and that performs better than other things out there. And this is important because, you know, there is this false dichotomy that you have to trade off AI and privacy, but this is wrong. This is actually not true at all. You can really have the two together. Final question. Do you watch or read or consume any science fiction? And if so, do you know any, any views of the future that you think are kind of in alignment with yours or anything you look at and say, yes, that's what could happen? I think there are bits and pieces in many of science, many science fiction books. Uh, and actually, this is the reason why I'm thinking about writing one myself now. <laughs> All right. All right, well, Rand, this has been fantastic. If people want to keep up with you, follow all of the things you've, uh, you're doing and will do, what, what are the, can you throw out some URLs, some Twitter handles, whatever it is that you, uh, people can use to keep an eye on, on you? Well, the best way to follow me, I guess, would be on Twitter. Uh, so my handle is Rand Hindi and on medium, my handle is Rand Hindi. Uh, so I blog quite a bit about, uh, AI and privacy, uh, and I'm going to be 
announcing quite a few things and you know giving quite a few ideas in the next few months. All right. Well, this has been a far-reaching and fantastic hour. I want to thank you so much for taking the time, Rand. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. If you want to learn more about the latest innovations in AI and machine learning, we recommend that you visit our friends at ARM at arm.com. That's ARM.com.